Hey, Rich Ziotti. Yo, Paul Ford. It's Track Changes from Postlight, the podcast that has some listeners who like to listen to things about technology. They give us five stars a lot, too. Oh, man. Did you see that? Uh, it's pretty good. I'm <laughs> just, we're all just waking up. This is an early Track Changes podcast recording session. But it's worth it. It's, it's, it's three sleepy dads in the studio <laughs> sucking down coffee. I'm Paul Ford. Rich Ciotti. We're the co-founders of Postlight, a product shop and web agency in New York City, and we are joined today by a man that many of you probably know. Some of you will meet him for the first time. His name is Koi Vin, K-H-O-I-V-I-N-H. Koi, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. such a badass name. Can I mention that? Is it really? I think so. I mean, it's a product of design itself. I wish you could go back in time and tell the seven, eight-year-old version of me that it would one day turn out to be a badass name. You didn't like it early days? It's just hard to have a name like that, you know, growing up in suburban Maryland where those kinds of names with... I've got two silent H's in my name. Those, that's not common in suburban Maryland. I know, but I mean, there's silent H's, but it's K-H-O-I-V. I mean, you get two four-letter names, just like me. And it's like, it's nice. It's unified. You can make a nice grid with your name. That's Did you have true. a Western, like a Westernized name? You know, like... My uncle Faraj, his name is Frank, and he owns mm-hmm. a deli. <laughs> You're not Kevin anywhere? Yeah, I was going to say, are you Kenny no, or any no. of that? I, didn't have any I that. might have, but I just have a single syllable first name, so it seemed right. like I'd be adding syllables. Well, yeah. Koi, those little Maryland kids are living empty, hollowed-out lives. Exactly. And barely <laughs> able to open their mouth to yeah. pronounce words. Except for the ones who went to Harvard. <laughs> yeah, the, uh, that's unfortunate, isn't it? Like, yes. Yeah. Okay, let's, let's not go down that path until no. we actually introduce who you are and what you do. Koi Vin, what is your title in this world? I'm Director of Product Design for Mobile at Adobe. So at your base, you are a digital designer, like a user experience designer, right? That's right. And you've been doing that for a while. A while, yeah. Since the 90s. That's right. Is one way to put it. I got to know Koi before I actually met Koi for years through his blog, Subtraction, which I always felt went a little bit beyond design and touched on a lot of things that influence design, impact design, how design impacts everything else. And it's, it's, you're still right, which is good. I, I used to write a lot, and I stopped. And most people stop, and it's, it's great that you continue to do it. I think, Koi, also, I'm going to speak about you for one second. You're of the, the cohort that came to the web because your interests were bigger than one specific discipline. Like, the mm-hmm. early set of people who showed up were like, I'm into this, I'm into this, I'm into this. Digital is kind of a way I could bring it all together. Like, if I go to your website, it's as much about culture and film and... Right. So. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people came to blogging because it was very liberating and exciting and a great way to talk about their interests. For me, that was all true, but it was also a chance for me to write, and I really enjoy that process, and that's why I keep doing it. I mostly still enjoy it, but generally it's about writing. It's interesting to think that at some point there's going to be 30-year blogs. Yeah. Well, now <laughs> I've got like a 10-something, 10-plus-year blog, which is kind of crazy. My blog is, is it's starting to break. This isn't about your blog. No, I know, but <laughs> this is about many blogs. I will, I will put forward, and I don't want to digress too far here, but over time, it's just breaking. Sure, unless you build a custom content management system and output static files like I did. And that's postlight.com. <laughs> Please come. <laughs> All right. All right. Rather than running through your 
your resume here, what would you say is sort of give us two two or three big highlights professionally for you in your career? I'm probably best known for being design director of NewYorkTimes.com for about five years, and as previously mentioned, I write the blog Subtraction.com. I had a startup called Mixel for a few years that was acquired in 2013. I've been kicking around a bunch of startups since then, and I've been at Adobe since last August. Okay. Let's dive in just really quickly, NewYorkTimes.com. What's the highlight or highlights within that five-year period? For me, the big story was that I got to help sort of reinvent the way the Times thought about design, particularly about product design. That company obviously has a long legacy of great design, tons of really talented designers and, and illustrators and photographers come through there. Mm-hmm. They, at the time that I joined, were just starting to get more sophisticated about thinking of the web as a platform and a little bit later thinking about mobile as a platform mm-hmm. and how to design products on top of that. Right. And I like to think I was, you know, played a pretty key role in doing that. We rebuilt the design team basically from scratch when I came in and reinvented the way design worked with all the other teams in the company. That's a big deal for a company that old and that entrenched. I I don't mean that negatively, but... No, I mean, it's the Times. Everyone has a... And it's our hometown newspaper. We all have weird personal relationships with it. So, I mean, I think this is good for for people to hear, right? You go in... Your design director, it doesn't sound like you were moving many pixels around on, in a box no, when you were doing that. that's correct. Like, I, I didn't do a lot of design there. I mean, most of what I did was hiring, which is, like, the most important thing a design, a manager of designers can do is to sort of think about who we need next and trying to find the, the right people to fill that role. And talking a lot with other parts of the business, other parts of the org, trying to figure out the process for getting really great design done. Very interesting. How does one, I think this is a very general question. I don't think there's any specific answer that applies to everyone, but I'm always interested. How does somebody who is very much a practitioner, you were, you know, reading your blog, reading subtraction.com, you were someone who was thinking about the very like bare bone structure of stuff, moving stuff around. You you really knew how to make and design things for digital and for the web in particular. What was it like when you transitioned into that management role? Yeah, well, that preceded me joining the Times. Even I mean, in the late '90s, when I was working at dot com agencies, I was already managing people. And then in 2001, I co-founded a design studio called Behavior with a few other colleagues of mine. And, and that's where I first met you. You hired me for something. Right. I, yeah, I cannot yeah. remember what. That's funny. Yeah, you were a friend of Chris Fahey's. That's, that's right. how I met you. Yeah, and Chris was one of my partners, still, still a good friend of mine. And um, as co-founders, we were, we were managing more than we were doing design, though. You know, as a small studio, we were doing a lot of both. Mm-hmm. So the, the transition was, I, mean, I definitely thought about okay, I'm getting to do less and less design and, and have to put more and more effort into management. But it was a lot of winging it. It wasn't like following. There's, there's actually no book out there that I've seen that does a great job of telling designers specifically about how to become managers. 
Right. I mean, I, I find that there's in, a bunch of medium articles. I found that in my you know, there's <laughs> on, on everything. Yeah. I, fi- I find that in my own career, like you're pushed into it rather than yeah. Like I think on the West Coast, maybe a little bit more. There's like a path, like hey, you need to go get this training, and we're going to get right. you an executive coach. And right, but here it's like. Oh wow, things are going well. I need to hire three people. Oh my God, there's a huge integration cost to having three people do something with me. I'd better get better at making sure they're all doing the same thing. Yeah, that's right. I mean, and then you start to learn that all the things that you think design management is about, like policing the aesthetics or the or the design execution, or making sure that designers talk to other folks in the business really well or I mean other other parts of the organization in in a language that makes sense for them or you know setting a, a creative vision for everything all of that is well it's important it's really just a very small part of the job the, the biggest part of the job is just clearing the way for designers to do their work and also being a kind of therapist slash coach <laughs> slash it's a tricky bunch, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, whatever. How do you spot talent? Is there anything that sort of like rings a bell in your brain? I think there are a lot of different approaches. My particular approach is, you know, I look for a great portfolio and then I look for somebody who can articulate himself or herself really, really well mm. in written form and spoken form. So you kind of got to get them into the room. Yeah, I mean, a lot of times I'll do is what I'll do is I'll I'll look at a portfolio and then I'll ask for a phone call interview and I will set the expectation that the, the phone call will be like five minutes, maybe 10 minutes just so that nobody's ex- like disappointed if it doesn't last long. And what I'm trying to do on that call is just hear if this is a person who first actually did the work that's in their portfolio, but second is able to express himself or herself in a way that's compelling or convincing. And I learn a lot from that call. And if there's enough to suggest that there's you know some some really smart thinking there, then I'll ask them to come in and, and meet them face to face. We hear a lot from people who are, are looking at career transitions into one of the fields that you know product management, design, mm-hmm. engineering. If someone's out there, they're smart. This is something that they're genuinely engaged with and interested in. Where do they start? Do they go to school? Is there one book that they should read before they make any decisions? Do you have any like? Well, I did write a book about making that transition uh, recently. Oh, <laughs> yeah. what a good question I asked then. <laughs> let's, let's talk about that book. Um, that's a book called How They Got There. You can find it at howtheygotthere.com. It's um, in- interviews with 14 digital designers, folks from agencies, from big tech companies, from independent practices. And it's all about how they got their first big break. And many of them came from other career paths and eventually – found their way to doing design. So the big lesson for me from that book is that there's no set, clear path. And a lot of these people started working when we all, like, you know, Paul, Richard, like we, we all started when the design industry or the digital design industry was young, so to speak. But I, I still think that the whole industry is quite young and, like, you really can't trade on best practices or, like, clearly pre-written rules for how to get ahead in a career these days or how to make a career just because the technology continues to change. Well, we see it in, with engineers a lot. We'll go into an organization and someone will be talking about XML and pipeline transformations right. when everything now is driven by APIs, which I know is a lot of buzzwords, but it's a very it represents this very significant shift in how work is done. Right, right. And it's going to take them a while to catch up. They can catch up. But, right. So, yeah, no, there's no path and you have to stay current. Yeah, right. You have to you have to stay current. You have to be open to change or to possibility and 
the bedrock principles are still being able to write and to speak clearly and being curious and driven and being willing to get out there and meet other people and build a network and create opportunities for yourself. So those are the commonalities between the the 14 people. Yes. Yeah. So it's it's like the real bare bones, like I was willing to take risks. I introduced myself to people. I learned how to talk about what I was doing. And I continually applied and rehearsed my talent. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Erica Hall, one of the first interviews I did, she's co-founder of Mule Design out in San Francisco. Like my, maybe my, my favorite learning from her was that she said early on she figured out a lot of her heroes, people who you would think are way too busy to talk to you, were reachable by phone or, or by email. She would just call them up and say, hey, could I take you to coffee? And she would take them out for a half an hour and get mm. all this fantastic advice that that she previously thought was completely unobtainable. I think that's very real. I think that for me, what I found is people occasionally hit me up for advice. And all you have to do is kind of come to my neighborhood. And it's, <laughs> it's not, you know, I don't know if you've had that experience. Like there's a people ask for stuff that's actually very hard to do. Yep. But if it's easy, you're going to find the half hour because you actually like we're all just inclined to help each other get across that hump. Paul, yeah. do you want to share out your address? <laughs> yeah, so sure. Make it available. I live in the I well, you know what? We work in Union Square now, so it's a lot easier. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Erica Hall, we should know too. She wrote a really good book about user research. Yes. Yeah. She's just a brilliant. Smart, thoughtful person who has a lot to add. So I mean that's that's cool. That's yep. good. I want to jump ahead, if possible. Two things I want to cover. Uh one is uh your time at Adobe now and mm-hmm. what's up and what's going on there. Adobe's doing a lot of stuff. Yeah. And I have to say Adobe could have gone the way of big box software retirement. I mean, look, mm-hmm. it had a reputation as a kind of stubborn company with a lot of crashing software. Yeah. There were a lot of mm-hmm. screenshots out in the world of like Adobe products imploding. <laughs> that was that was the experience yeah. of like the last five years. But I mean, yeah. they've, they've built and they continue to build some landmark pieces of software that are part of people's everyday lives. But they're also expanding and growing and kind of branching out and. It's actually kind of fascinating to watch. I'm always fascinated to see big companies react nimbly to what's happening around them. I think it's an yeah. incredibly impressive feat. And you're thinking about like up, creative cloud and stuff yeah. like that. Uh, even beyond, just I'm just you know you see you see the apps like a large organization like that to put out what I view. I mean, relatively speaking, as snack size pieces of software practically isn't easy. Um, it isn't easy to reconcile the brand and the image of the, of the company, too. So it's impressive to me to, to see that happen. I mean, one question is, when you go in there, that Adobe is ground zero for what we think of as digital design. Like, they created... Mm-hmm. It, it's born on the back of PostScript, which is the language that printers used. Right. And so it's as old and rich a legacy of how things should work on a computer as possible. What was it like coming in as someone who was like a very web and sort of product-specific person coming up in that culture, also on the East Coast, to this, like, true hot center of what represents... I, I'd, I'd be interested in hearing the courtship to pull a Koivin into yeah. an Adobe. <laughs> uh, we don't well, have to go through the, every bit of detail, but that's interesting in and of yeah. itself, right? Yeah, I mean, the transformation that Adobe has gone through in the past several years has been remarkable, and it's part of what drew me in. I mean, if you think about... In the pre-Creative Cloud world, the whole company, this really big company that had been around for 30 years was completely oriented around shipping box software. And everything everything had to, to work through the lens of one of the their big pieces of you know marquee applications like Photoshop or InDesign or something like that. 
And then this transformation to um, subscription, you know, getting all your software through the cloud. I think that in itself is really amazing. And like now, I can't remember the exact number, but the majority of the revenue is, is um, you know, subscription-based now. And they've almost entirely removed um, what we call perpetual licensing. Yeah, I would have no idea how to buy a non-subscriber version of There's like, they're on eBay. Like right. You can get the boxes. The old version, yeah, but the new versions don't happen. I mean, I think what was really brilliant about the the transformation is it it entailed completely resetting the way the company thinks about software. Yeah. So now, instead of having to ship every feature idea through one of the marquee applications, now you have room to create other franchises, whether they're the numerous mobile applications that we've been creating on iOS and the Android or like brand new franchises that will start on the desktop, but also move to our mobile app um, platforms like uh, Adobe Experience Design XD, our new UX/UI mm-hmm. design tool. All of that's possible because now we don't have to think about accruing sales specifically to Illustrator or Photoshop. Now we just think about the Creative Cloud subscription, and so long as people are continuing to get value out of it and and re-upping every year, yeah. then we're we're free to innovate in a much different way, in a way that's much more aligned with what a customer wants. They, yeah. they want to continue to get new value out of that subscription, and that's what we're motivated to do. Sure. So you're walking down the street one day, and you look down at your Android KitKat device. and Right. Yeah, which I'm sure you have. And I've, uh, got, I've got Android <laughs> devices that I like very much. Okay, good. Yeah. So you look down at your Android KitKat phone, and... Um, there's an email from Adobe one day saying like, hey, we saw we Koi, what's up? So in 2013, I had sort of finished the journey of my startup Mixel and was thinking about what I was going to do next. And I actually, on my blog, had written intermittently about Adobe software and had been sort of pointedly critical about it. And I happened to do that once more in 2013. But this time I got an email from Scott Belsky. He's a friend of mine. He's the co-founder of Behance. And at, at that time, he was VP for, for mobile and community, I believe, at Adobe. And, and Behance is a... Behance is a creative uh, social network. It's for, for sharing portfolio work. Right. Um, yeah. And um, Scott said, hey, I, I read your piece. Why don't you, if you have time, come by. I'd love to catch up. And he, he and I caught up uh, not long afterwards, and he sort of showed me all the things they were working on in terms of mobile software. And also, Worth noting, Behance was acquired by Adobe. Yes, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah, uh, Behance had been acquired by Adobe. It was an independent right. sort of community for designers. Well, and there's a larger point there, which is that Adobe started to acquire things that were, I think we all considered as quite progressive and, and pretty yeah, good. Right. Like, and not screwing up the acquisitions. Right. Like Yahoo bought things we loved like Flickr and, and mm-hmm. obliterated them. Yeah. Delicious as well. But Behance and then Typekit. Yep, which exactly. In some ways, yep. it sounds like it became the core of Creative Cloud or, or got, became connected to Creative Cloud. And yeah, yeah, they did a smart thing. They they gave a lot of responsibility and, and influence to the folks at Typekit, the folks at Behance to, to bring that sort of startup, web-based, mobile-based thinking to their mm-hmm. sort of desktop, big picture also, stuff. Also, cla- Typekit is a cloud service. Mm-hmm. A lot of the thinking around just the product of cloud service was brought into the organization just by acquiring Typekit. So you weren't just getting a bunch of fonts and a, and a cloud service. You were getting a team of people who think about software in a completely different way. That's exactly right. To infuse into the culture. There was definitely an offsite before these acquisitions oh, yeah. started happening where the executives at Adobe got like 
croissants and coffee <laughs> and big it was at the Marriott. Big, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Exactly. They went to like they had to drive up a really windy road to get to the exactly. Place. Yeah. And they're like, guys, how are we going to do this? And uh, it's almost like you guys together. work there. <laughs> <laughs> it always pains me to praise a very very large organization, but <laughs> but like acquisitions like this are typically very destructive. That's right. Just typically like, totally. hey, we got these, we want the cool new thing and like somebody was like, my daughter uses that or my son, and it's just, and they go and they buy it and no one knows what to do and the team doesn't get a leadership role and everyone's ego. And there's that are, friction of the existing yeah. incumbents and the, the just the, just all the, pain of humans yeah. interacting and, and one of the reasons i joined was i saw how high the retention rate was at behance is who are here in new york i mean they did not yeah go through really painful massive attrition so. it's actually something fascinating right because large companies are not mindful of the signal that sends out to the larger community right. like they're like oh hey we just we gave these these annoying young nerds like all this money and now they're ungrateful and we'll go get another one but it's actually this spiral where like the, everyone starts to recoil. Yep. Yeah. And you're no longer cool if you get acquired by a bad company. Like it's right. all these weird social dynamics going on. Yeah. It takes a certain level, I mean, just as a large organization of humility and maturity to just leave that organization alone and not swoop in and say, well, we've got an idea of how to optimize this. And we're also hearing another story, which is that Koi was a critic of the products and that mm. they were like, okay, look, we're going to welcome that criticism. Yeah, I think... I mean, it, partly it was through my friendship with Scott, but also like the whole organization, folks who had not been part of the Behance team even were were very welcoming and were really human about owning up to past flaws and thinking critically about how they could, you know, course correct going forward. So that right. really impressed me. So they, you reached out, started to have coffee. Yeah. So actually, Scott asked me if I had learned anything from. My experience with my startup, Mixel, which was a, an iPad app for creativity, if I'd learned anything that might go into a new app on top of Creative Cloud for Adobe. And I went away and wrote up a bunch of thoughts about that and sent them back over to Scott, and he really liked them. And he basically put together a little team, and we prototyped for a while, and eventually in the spring of 2014, 14, 2015, I think we, we officially released an app called Adobe Comp, which is a, a layout app for iPad and, and iPhone, and I soon will be on Android. And it's it's a very, very fluid, mobile-native way of combining images and type and assets that you create from our drawing and, and photo apps um, together in a sort of, sort of next-generation illustrator or, or InDesign type of fashion. That's out now. I can go get that in the App Store. Yeah, that's yeah. that's now, and you can actually get a free Adobe ID and download the app and, and try it out. What was it like going from, I mean, the Times had global scale, but ultimately it was a lot of pages, like a lot of web pages. Mm -hmm. What was it like to go from a startup and relatively smaller software projects to something that was going to be completely global, global marketing campaign, yeah. almost by default, millions of users. Yeah, so that's a that's a big part of what I think about today because we we have all these apps on Creative Cloud that run on mobile and they have an audience of millions of folks and the interdependencies of the component parts of the software are really advanced and and complex. Mm -hmm. 
So a lot of my job is thinking about how to make the experience consistent across all of our apps. When you're sharing stuff, when you're importing stuff, when you're you know, accessing our type tool or doing this or that. At the same time, I've got to balance thinking about each individual app on its own merits and trying to really get it to the next level of engagement of discoverability and and really trying to turn it into the next big franchise so it's it's a tough balancing act but you're you're actively thinking about that scale that's what you're telling right. like we have an idea and we talk a lot a small shop building a, a product on day one we can think about an, an mvp a minimum viable product i'm looking at rich as i say this we can throw away so many concerns we don't have to think about yeah. how it's going to do in china stuff no, like that right and it sounds like that has to be there, maybe not from day zero, but it's you. a product doesn't go to market in any way unless a lot of boxes get checked off. That's true. I mean, when Adobe starts a brand new product, you know, that product benefits tremendously from being part of the ecosystem, from having the Adobe brand on it, like maybe the, the biggest benefit. And there's a lot of sort of foundation work that the app has to do in order to integrate into that ecosystem. Um, but... At the same time, like we try to keep in mind that you know we're competing in a world, especially on phones and tablets, in a world where new apps get to five, ten, fifty million downloads and you know have millions of, of monthly active users. They don't have to think about the ecosystem, an ecosystem, right? They they're building on their own merits and they're fully aligned with what their customers or their users are trying to do. So we really have to balance these these two ideas, the one of, of being part of an ecosystem and the other of competing in a marketplace that is is full of really nimble players. It's tough. And when you say like a small team is prototyping a new mo- mobile product, how big is a, a small team? So when I started working on Comp, it was just myself and one prototyper. Okay, so just two people yeah. kind of sh- sharing fun. emails. That is yeah, fun. That was really fun, and it was just – you know, rapid prototyping, just, you know, throwing ideas back and forth for a while. So the prototyper is mostly a programmer or? Yes, he's okay. a programmer. Um, he is based out west but came to New York for a little bit of time. We spent, we did some work. <clears throat> and then when he went back out west, we continued to do stuff over email or, or chat or what have you. What are you saying to me? You're saying like, what if we, t- what if I double finger touch it and move yeah. it to the left? And- exactly. Okay. Yeah, or and he's what building if- out these sort of mock versions of the application. Yeah, so I started with some, you know, wireframes or schematic drawings of how I thought the interface would look and lots of descriptions about how I thought they should work. And he would build those up and we would look at a prototype or a build and decide what was working, what wasn't working, mm-hmm. and maybe new ideas to throw in there or other ideas to chuck out. And we just did that in rapid succession for a number of weeks until we got to a point where we felt that the features were in good enough shape. I mean, still very, very rough, but in coherent enough shape that we could put it in front of some users. Yeah. And we did some user testing and, and got some feedback. And when we sat down with the folks at Adobe to go over the feedback, lots of things didn't work. And there was you know, lots of stuff that obviously we, we didn't know the answers to yet. But the team at Adobe were, were still enthusiastic enough to actually make the team bigger at that point. And, and they, they, they kind of, of speak software, right? So they're seeing, exactly. yeah. We okay, run in- so there was a dating period. Essentially, they hired you as sort of a, an independent 
contractor right. or consultant. Yeah. That's how they got to know each other. Right. I think that's worth noting in terms of his yeah. transition into Adobe as they, they the, dated for a while. The thing that, I, that I'm hearing is we go, we offer that to our clients a lot. We're like, mm-hmm. okay, hey, you just came in and you said you want this really big thing really fast. Mm-hmm. And the way to do that is we're going to give you one or two people and mess around. We're going to build a prototype. Yeah, don't make the big bet just yet. And it just like they immediately recoil because they don't see that as cutting their risk. And so it's, it's just worth noting like a yeah. big is software. Is that throwaway? Yeah. yeah. That's usually the reaction. A big right. software company is really comfortable with that. Right. Like that's part of the process and actually part of the process whereby they decide that you are – you're somebody that they're going to continue working with. I'll tell you, one of the biggest lessons I've learned in the past five years, having you know been in startups and been in like pure software companies, is in contrast to the way I thought about products when I was at a design studio before, basically a, a little agency or a big agency and then at, at a big company, it's very difficult to predetermine what a product is going to look like or feel like or even do from the beginning. And Maybe the biggest truism that I've I've discovered about software products is they are the direct result of the people who work on them in the beginning, those very early formative stages. And I think a lot of companies, especially big companies that say, okay, we need a social network to do this or we need a big app that does this, they don't understand how important the, the people are and they will write out a list of goals for the product and then just go and find whoever's going to sign up to, to do that. And essentially, it's a bit like trying to determine the outcome of, to use the, the metaphor you used a moment ago, Rich, a relationship. Like you can't know like where two people are going to go or, or three or four people are going to go in the way they relate to each other or what yeah. comes out of what they do. Well, and we, we see it a lot with media companies. Like it's just hard for them to go, okay, go figure it out because mm-hmm. um, they have a real preconceived notion and often they've only been able to get the budget to get something built right. because they because they can say we're going to do this to compete with this other organization right. and we can cut our risk that way and they, they come to us and we're like well you actually should go for a little more risk right now mm-hmm. and it's everyone's shoulders get tense and then it becomes a conversation but no it's I see that and then the flip side is that it's intolerably expensive to do this to work this way is actually quite costly you're not quite sure what you're getting maybe i mean i think a lot of times companies will put a big team on a project before a a line of code even prototyping code has been written and that's incredibly expensive as well and in many ways no i mean they spend more on paper towels than than they do on this project but it just like (laughs) it because the outcome is unclear and it can't get reported back in you know in a sensible quarterly way yeah you're yes. like, what are we doing here? Exactly, yeah. exactly. I, you know, it's, I mean, I, I think people, they can't help but sort of drive their thinking through comparisons that they understand. And if I walked into an architect's office and said, play around a little bit, I need this to be better, Yeah. right? That's, that's an open-ended sort of, there's a lot of unknown there. And you don't know when it's going to stop. And you don't know if there's anything even viable that's going to come out of it. And I think that's what most don't get about product is how dodgy it really is or how organically it evolves and how organically it evolves. it's not a linear it's very rarely like a linear exactly um, progression from the first line of code to the shipping code you know i think another thing too is people always assume and that costs will increase which is often true but sometimes if you just let this go someone will come back and go actually we figured out that we can do we can have like a million less lines of code we can do if we just like put this rectangle here the users get real excited and things can save money or increase the level of engagement or whatever, whatever. Right. But 
It's just a, it's a real puzzler. But what's interesting is that you know Adobe and these big software companies are creating spaces to allow that kind of play to happen. Managing yeah. that risk is how they thrive. Yeah, and I mean, some of it's geographic too. I mean, Adobe is located in in San Francisco. I mean, they have an office in San Jose too. I mean, they're right at ground zero for this kind of development, this yeah. kind of thinking about products. And in New York, here, I think you know we're we're not as exposed to to this approach. Definitely. I mean, it's, it's, it's a subject yeah. that we as a trying to build products in New York City are completely like it's, it comes to us every day. Yeah. That yeah. I bet. It's not the Bay Area. Right. Yeah. yeah. I do have one more question. Okay. And I, I, I just need an explanation because it's, he's been casually showing him. I follow you on Twitter. Okay. And then you bought, I guess you bought an Apple Pencil with an iPad Pro or whatever. Yes. And he's like, check it out. I just sketched a little thing. <laughs> and it's Pro. Koi is a good you, illustrator. No, wait. Did, is, that's just you sort of playing around? Yeah. I mean, I actually went to school not to study computers or to figure out what org charts yeah. look like. I went to school for drawing and painting. And Got I went to school it. because when I was in high school, I spent all my time in the art room. Got and it. so I had a passion for you know making marks on flat surfaces with, yeah. with pens. And I had put that... On the back burner, the way back burner for many, many years while I created this career in design and software. Mm. But Apple Pencil and iPad Pro just sort of finally sort of dovetailed those yeah. two. And What are your impressions, by the way? I mean, it... Apple Pencil is an amazing achievement in many ways because like when I draw with a pencil – in some apps that sort of mimic real-world media, then you sort of see like the, the substrate or, or the texture of the, of the virtual paper you're drawing on. Sometimes I feel like, like why can't I actually feel like the, the roughness of the paper through the pencil? Because the, the, the line is so accurate and the responsiveness is so so true mm. that it's, it's really great. And with Johnny Ive was there with the shock collar. Yeah. Making sure that... <laughs> ah, yeah. More like paper. Yeah, I've but also, it's, it's, it's some, in some ways, it's, it's better than drawing with a real pen and pencil or uh, on paper because, like, and not that I want to become, like, a total shill for all things Adobe, but there are vector drawing apps like um, Adobe Illustrator Draw, which essentially give you, like, infinite resolution. You can zoom in as far as you want and still have the pencil to create, like, incredibly fine detail or zoom out. And, yeah. Oh, this, and is, an, this like is an iPad app? Yeah, this is an iPad app, yes. Called that, Adobe Draw? Yeah, Adobe Illustrator Draw, yeah. And it, it's, okay. Well, you know, there was software like this in, like, the early 90s, like right. a lot of infinite zoom and a lot yeah. of early tablet stuff. It, it sometimes takes 20 years for those ideas Absolutely. to percolate. Yeah, and I think it's really come together with, with the pencil and with some of the software that's available out there. It's or really like cool. Amazon Echo with speech. Like suddenly there's a product pattern there where everyone's all excited and happy about it in a yeah. way that they're not even with like Siri. Yeah, yeah. Where it's just like it, it comes together as the Yeah, product. same with smartphones too. Like smartphones were kicking around for X number of years before iPhone came yeah. out. So, God help us with what's next. I have no idea. Virtual it's reality. the future. VR. Yeah, it might be VR's turn, but yeah. I don't know, man. We'll see. <sighs> Do you own a pair of Oculus Rift goggles? I don't. No. I, I, I want to <laughs> deep dive into why the what are they called? Google Glass. Google Glass. Yeah. Why that failed? I think that's a fascinating story. Yeah. That's. I think it's just because you look like an idiot. Yeah. I, it didn't help. 
Yeah, and now yeah. VR is around. It's like, oh, look, on the F train, there's somebody who's I think it was giggling also, at, while, while there's a VR on their face. It was also just slow and not that fun. Headset. Like, yeah. it just, these things are yeah. fun. Like, like, what Koi is telling us is that he loves to draw and he has no time for it, but it's yeah. really, it hits that part of his brain and lights it up. I think that's mm. right. It really is fun and it's it, really cool. It makes you keep wanting to do it. It's not that it's. You're doing it because you're consciously saying, okay, I'm trying to figure out the futures. You're just doing it because you're enjoying the moment. Yeah, very cool. So people who want to know how to become Koi Vin or (laughs) one of 14 people that Koi Vin interviewed should go get a copy. I'm assuming they can – what's the website called? Howtheygotthere.com. Good website. How they got their interviews with digital designers about their careers. Right. Can I get that as an ebook? You can get it in a number of electronic formats, and you can also get it in hardcover. Exciting. I, I want to close this by asking Koi what he does really badly and he's really ashamed of. Oh, yeah. What are you terrible <laughs> at? Yeah. What do I do really badly that I'm ashamed of? You have, like, lower back problems? I definitely have lower back problems since right, having cool. children. That's just, that's just <laughs> being a dad and lifting yeah, things. Yeah. yeah. Um, How do you, how's your singing? My singing is terrible. Okay, All right, cool. Yes. That's good. No, My that's singing good. and dancing and ability to play musical instruments is, is terrible. Nice. Yes. All right. Do you ever <laughs> do you see yourself returning to like just ever just designing things? Well, I do a number of projects on the side that sort of scratch that itch. So because it never goes away, right? Yeah, I mean, I th- one of the things I really enjoyed about you know co-founding a startup or being in the startup world is that every day is different, and some days you actually did quite a bit of design. When I was at the last startup I was at, it was called Wildcard, mm-hmm. and but then you know another day you might be thinking about like a, like an investor meeting, or you might be thinking about a partnership or something like that. Whatever you do it all, but just having the variety, I think, has been the thing that's kept me interested in my career going forward. If I were designing every day, I don't think I would be really happy. If I were purely managing whatever that is every day. I don't think I would be happy. Well, on that note, thank you so much for coming in and talking great. to us. Thanks for us. Really enjoyed it. Koi Vin and uh, Subtraction.com. That's right. That's my blog. Excellent place to find Koi and find all things Koi related. Appreciate it. See you soon. Thanks, Thanks guys. All right. That Koi Vin is a bright young man. He is. He's, go- he's going places. I think he's going to do something in the design industry. I can't wait to see what happens. Yeah. It's interesting to see a, like a specific cohort, like a specific group of human beings who've been doing it for a while. Like the giant companies and those people, which kind of includes us, like we work with big companies too and we work with small companies. Yeah. As you get older, it all sort of starts to mush together a little bit. Yeah. So it's just, I don't know, it's just an observation. It is mushing together. Yeah. yeah. It's, the software's figured out where the web is and the big stuff. I don't know. Look, hey, I think that's enough. Oh, we better get back to the office. Yes. All right. This is Paul Ford. And Rich Ziotti. Hey, can you bring the uh, energy level up just a little bit? And Richie Z. Yeah. (laughs) Perfect. (laughs) All right. We are the co-founders of Postlight, a product shop web agency right here in Manhattan. And if y'all have questions, send an email to contact at postlight.com. Rich, good show. I'll talk to you soon. Have a great week. Bye-bye. Bye.